In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 12. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Let's talk about this storage unit. It weighs on my mind and consumes my time. I drove all the way back to Canada to our storage unit. All the while, voices whispered in my head. Some were warnings. The scream is almost here. The usual maddening things. And instructions, too. Instructions I felt obliged to follow, despite the malevolence I felt in them. I reached the storage unit block. Every single unit had been broken into and vandalized. Every single one, besides ours. Ours sat there, untouched, like a mockery among the devastation. There were no cops, no crime tape even. I entered the scene. The black cat was sniffing through the rubble of the other units, which had long since been cleaned out of any valuables. I went inside ours. Nothing much had changed. The same musty books and documents. The same strange electricity. But now I could feel a presence, too. Like someone, some thing, lurking behind the stacks, just out of eyesight no matter where I explored. For a moment, I wondered if the cat had gotten inside, so I peeked out the door and... No, the animal's still aimlessly exploring some distance away. I went about my work. I grabbed a small book and slid it into my pocket, although I have little memory of doing so at the time. And then, I doused the whole place in gasoline. Can after can, as I'd been instructed to buy on my way here. When I was done, when all the documents were soaked, I made a trail of gas leading out the door so the flames would pass through a little gap in the brickwork. Then I slammed the door shut for what I hope is one final time. The lighter flame caught the gas almost immediately. I turned and walked away. I had no idea how or why the whole unit exploded. It was just meant to burn. I kept walking the cat fleeing past me to safety. I didn't look back. And now I'm here in New Jersey again, and all I keep hearing when I close my eyes to sleep is a vicious, mocking voice saying, Well done. The following is a recording of the sole book remaining from the storage unit. It's part of a dictionary, although unlike one I've ever seen. The book has a strange, alien feel to it. The author is credited as C. Devlin, and Jessica McAvoy has helped out by recording the text. It's called 
Dictionary for the Apocalypse, Section N. Dictionary for the Apocalypse, Section N. Nuclear Armageddon. Noun. The thing that fucked the world. Might as well start at the beginning. Non-essential. Adjective. Describes personnel unnecessary to keep the shelter operating. For example, someone you could walk up to and say, Hey, you're not doing anything important, so we're assigning you to the dictionary project. Have fun doing it in the non-existent amount of free time you've been allotted. Someone who's sorry their doctorate was in lepidoptery and not, oh, structural engineering, perhaps. Someone who's just grateful they were given N and not S or R or one of the other letters that would take forever. Someone who is still going to half-ass this because little rebellions are all she has left. Neo-capitalism. Noun. The reason why our former government subcontracted out building the shelters to private companies. And the reason why those companies subcontracted out to cheaper companies. And the reason why those companies subcontracted out to even cheaper companies. And so on. It's the reason why the seal on the main door doesn't fit quite right, and the air scrubbers don't always work, and the water filtration system runs dry when you look at it wrong. The reason that we're all living a carton a day, 12 hours in the tanning bed, licking the glowing paint kind of existence. Nobody. Noun. An absence of people. Not something you ever experience when you hot rack with two other non-essentials. The one with the rest period right before mine has an assignment near the reactor. His hair is falling out. Tufts of it scattered over the pillow whenever I go to lie down. Sometimes I wake up with strands in my mouth or find them itching inside my clothes. I tug at my own hair now and then to see how much will come out. It's not a lot. Not yet, anyway. I've started going to the main door just for a little time alone. To get there, I have to pass a half dozen signs, each printed in three languages with a skull and crossbones at the bottom to really get the point across. Step over the fluorescent yellow and black striped line. In nature, bright colors often indicate the presence of poison. But everything here is toxic. All that matters is the dosage. I rest with my back against the smooth concrete wall, facing the colossal door. Breathe in and out. And in and out. The tension bleeds out of my shoulders and my fists unclench. The little white crescents my nails left in my palms flush pink and then fade. I've always been this way. Always needed a bit more space than other people. From other people. Ducked my way out of hugs and handshakes. Spent Friday nights working on my thesis. There wasn't enough room in me for anyone else. With one exception. Nation. Noun. This is what we are now. The glorious nation of Rad Shelter 2943. Population, too many. National anthem, the first verse of the Star-Spangled Banner, because none of us can remember the rest. National insect, 
some sort of cockroach that's taken to scuttling over our faces when we sleep. National disease. Brain cancer. This is what the world is now. Lonely little nations playing dress-up with mommy's heels and lipstick. Neurotic. Adjective. When you think you hear something moving on the other side of the main door. I jerked back from where I'd been resting, scrabbling on all fours like an insect over the striped hazard line, breath hissing between my clenched teeth, palms clammy with nervous sweat, prey waiting and listening for a stalking predator. But all was quiet. With each passing moment of silence, I relaxed a little more. It wouldn't be the first time stress had gotten the better of me. I think back to the first few days when the surprise of having survived curdled into the realization that I would have to live with everything that meant. I used to dream Saf was calling my name, begging me to come back, saying she didn't want to go alone. It didn't always stop when I woke up. I cautiously edged towards where I'd been sitting, hoping to get a few more minutes of rest before my next rotation, when I heard it. A low, animal moan, ragged and gurgling, as if forcing its way through a blistered throat. There was a muffled thud, something throwing itself against the metal, and then a faint, scratching sound. Picture a dog scrabbling at a door. Picture a cheap knife rasping over concrete. Pathetic and menacing and enough to send me fleeing down the corridor. And now, hours later and levels lower... I can still hear it. Nubile. Adjective. Not sure about this one. It's probably got a perfectly legitimate definition, but I can only ever think of it as a porn word. You know, like turgid or engorged. Along with dictionaries, enough mattresses, and non-dehydrated food, nobody thought to grab a few hard drives of entertainment before we sealed the door. Being the highly educated professionals most of us are, we found solutions to the problem. Happy to be alive sex turned into distracting one another from the apocalypse sex, turned into aggressively bored sex, which, when the restricted diet and sleep rotations took their toll, turned into no sex. Not that I participated in any of it. Everything was so raw for me back then. It was an unbearable effort to get out of bed, to eat, to talk, to exist. I couldn't imagine wanting to be with anyone again. And there weren't many options for me if I had. Just one option, really. Just the doctor. And she's no option at all. We used to go to the same evacuation drills, and she would find excuses to stand too close, touching my shoulder or my hair suggesting we meet up after for coffee, or more than coffee, always framing it as a joke, like tacking on a just kidding fooled anyone but herself. She didn't even stop when I said I was married. Creep. Nymphality. Noun. Formerly the largest family of butterflies. Currently a sizable collection of radioactive ash. Sophia never forgave me for the tattoo. I got it before we met, I said. It was to celebrate getting accepted into my program, I said. The lower back is a minimally painful area for a first tattoo, I said. 
She replied that I had no idea how embarrassing it was to have fallen for someone with a butterfly tramp stamp. Vanessa Cardui tramp stamp, I corrected, more commonly known as a painted lady. Precision is important, babe. She liked it when I was pedantic. She had entertaining ways of shutting me up. And after, sheets kicked down to the foot of the bed and sweat drying on our skin, her calloused fingertip tracing gently over the inked lines, her mock serious threat to get my name in a heart on her bicep, or misspelled lettering on her knuckles, or some other equally mortifying tattoo to make us even, her snorting laugh when I hit her in the face with a pillow. I didn't deserve her. I think I knew it even then. Next. Verb. The scratching has been going on for weeks now. That horrible scrape that resonates in my teeth and bones. As if it were me being clawed at, and not two feet of reinforced steel. It stays in my ears when I try to sleep, and I wish for a blanket or pillow. Anything to hide under for just a moment of stolen comfort. I toss and turn through my whole rest period, soaking the thin mattress with sweat until a woman shoves me out of it and lies down for her turn. Sleep deprivation was what finally drove me to see the doctor. I'd begun to hallucinate little things here and there, butterflies fluttering gently around the ceiling, my wedding ring back on my finger. I could still see a glint of gold when I raised my hand to knock on the door of the clinic. The doctor put a hand on my shoulder and offered me a chair. Sounds like a simple case of stress, she said when I told her I wasn't sleeping, about the noises and the butterflies and the ring. Nothing that a mild sedative wouldn't fix. There was something in the cadence of her voice that made me pause. Some subvocal warning. So it wasn't a surprise when she said that sort of medication was restricted to essential personnel. When she said maybe she could make an exception for me. When she offered a trade. And when I declined, she showed me out with a forced smile. Nature. Noun. My parents never understood why I chose lepidoptery, but the signs were there if they'd known how to read them. When I was little, I'd put worms in my pocket and forget about them until I reached in and touched the gooey mess. I'd catch dragonflies in the summer, pinching the delicate wings with my thumbs and forefingers and holding them crucified between my chubby child hands. Once, I caught a butterfly. Vanessa Cardui, I know now, but at the time it was just orange and pretty. I stalked it from flower to flower, sneaking closer whenever it perched to rest on a leaf or petal, until I was finally close enough. I'd only meant to hold it like my dragonflies, but I was too excited. Instead of stretching it out for a good look, I tore off one of its wings. Startled, I dropped the butterfly and it fell to the dirt, fluttering weakly in an attempt to right itself. Scales from its wings smeared across my fingertips like orange Cheeto dust. I started to cry. It wasn't the first time I'd hurt something beautiful, but it was the first time I'd felt bad about it. My mother said I was inconsolable for days. Since then, whenever I forgot to call home on her birthday or return my father's emails, whenever I argued with Saf over something stupid and petty, 
pressing every button she had because I wanted to win more than I wanted to find a solution. Whenever I do something thoughtless and cruel, I feel it. The silken rip of a butterfly's wing. Nursery. Noun. The overseers gathered us to talk about a breeding program again. They say we need to think about the survival of the species. They say non-essential, viable women might need to make some sacrifices to ensure our collective future. To ensure that humanity survives. As if what they're proposing wouldn't finish off what little humanity we have left. It's a pointless exercise in cruelty. The shelter won't last another ten years. Twenty at most. Either the air scrubbers will break beyond repair and will all quietly asphyxiate, or the water filters will, and will much less quietly die from dehydration. Or, if we make it all the way to twenty, the food will run out and we'll have a final flirtation with murder and cannibalism. But then I think of the alternative. Three hundred years from now, some pallid, inbred thing squirming into the sunlight, eyeless and soft, its larval face still bearing the obscene legacy of an overseer's jawline and my mouth. Humanity reborn. Sometimes I just think about that. Noxious. Adjective. I've been thinking about the radium girls. Young women working at a glow-in-the-dark watch factory, painting the dials with radium. To get the cleanest lines, they needed a sharp tip on the paintbrush. To get a sharp tip, they were told to point the brushes with their lips. Watch after watch, day after day, they swallowed poison. It hid in their marrow, accumulating with every triumphant production quota. As the radium decayed, it shredded those girls from the inside out. Their hair fell out, and tumors boiled under their skin. And when they died, their bones glowed in the dark. History moves in circles. <sighs> God, Sav, what am I going to do? I should have stayed with you. I think about it all the time. When the sirens went off, we could have just gone back home sat down on the couch and waited. Maybe put on a movie, eat all the ice cream in the fridge. That wouldn't have been such a bad way to go. I'm a coward. You said it was okay, but I think I would have left even if you hadn't. I've been swallowing poison every day since. Neuter. Verb. When I was approved for the shelter list, they sent me a welcome packet. Mostly packing lists and detailed evacuation protocols, but there was also a pamphlet about radiation safety, printed on thick, glossy paper with a little cartoon man to explain the three types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. Alpha particles can be blocked by as little as a layer of clothing, beta particles by a sheet of metal, Gamma rays by several inches of lead or concrete. The main door is at least two feet thick, but it doesn't seal. I stepped over the hazard line, and the scratching grew frenzied, a metal file sawing through the base of my skull. But it became quieter as I continued to approach. Stopped altogether once I lay down, the floor gritty and cold under my cheek, 
my back against the gap between the door and the wall, closer than I'd ever dared before. I put a hand over my stomach and picture the tangled worms of my intestines. I picture the little cartoon man and his little cartoon warnings about radiation poisoning. It kills through cellular degeneration, but only in high doses. Before that, you'll experience a buffet of gastrointestinal issues, hair loss and lesions, seizures, cognitive impairment, cancers, sterility. I hope it won't hurt too much. The pamphlet didn't say. Nostrum. Noun. Guess whose hallucinations still don't qualify for medication? While I was there, the doctor had me fill out paperwork about when my last menstruation cycle was, and if I had ever been pregnant before. Things like that. Breeding questions. I wrote down the least appealing answers I could imagine. Let them think I haven't bled since we were sealed in. Check yes to every inheritable genetic disorder. The doctor looked at the papers for a long time when I gave them back. Then she smiled and said I could go. It didn't make me feel better. It showed too many teeth. Non-consensual. Adjective. I didn't lose my virginity until my junior year of college. Not for lack of desire on my part, but because I flirted entirely by staring at girls I thought were attractive, hoping they would make the first move. By the law of averages, eventually one did. I don't remember her name, just the bright red of her lipstick, the plunging neckline of her dress. Drunk on three wine coolers and the thrill of finally being wanted, I didn't stop to think if I wanted it too. I did. I think, but I didn't stare so much after. The first time I went home with Saf, she stopped as soon as she got my shirt off. I seemed so nervous, she said. Embarrassed, I sputtered something about her needing to get on with it. She kissed my forehead, told me it was okay. We ended up watching a nature documentary, wrapped in heavy blankets and each other. She held me close in her sleep, my face tucked into the hollow of her neck surrounded by the faintly floral scent of her shampoo. In the morning, I rolled her on her back, and we finished what we started. Then, there was the doctor. In the early days when I couldn't move from a mattress, one side of my face glued to the fabric with snot and dried tears, she sat with me, brushed the greasy tangles of hair out of my eyes, told me in a quiet, hoarse little voice that she'd lost people too. She understood what I was feeling. But didn't we deserve to be happy again? Shouldn't we wring every drop of pleasure we still could out of this world? She'd give me anything I wanted. Better food. More sleep. As many pills as it took to make the pain stop. Anything. Everything. All I had to do was say yes. I flung an arm over my eyes and waited for her to leave. Negligible. Adjective. I think the radiation is working. The skin around my tattoo is tender and hot to the touch, and I wake up for each work rotation with insistent low-grade nausea in a parody of morning sickness. Still, I don't know if that's enough. I keep coming to the main door to rest against the cold steel. 
Behind me, I can hear the desperate scrabbling of some unseen creature. In front of me, a corridor leads deeper into the shelter, hungry and twisting like the esophagus of some great beast. Between the two, I'd rather take my chances with the thing outside. I imagine it'd be more honest about what it wants from me. If it weren't for the 16-digit code needed to open the door, I might have already indulged my curiosity. This time, the creature made different noises as I went to sit down. Softer. Inviting, almost. When I put my ear to the crack, I could just barely hear what sounds like a voice. Hoarse and broken. Tortured enough, it's only the cadence that makes me think of human speech. It's a hallucination brought on by too much stress and too little sleep, of course. But strangely, it's still better company than I've had in a long time. Naked. Adjective. Earlier, the doctor called me into her office. Any hope I might have had for a prescription died when I saw the paperwork on her desk. A queasy sort of horror twisted my stomach. I just wanted to have a little checkup with you, she said, oozing saccharine concern. Someone with your medical history can't be too careful. Please, take off your clothes and get on the exam table. She had that same smile on her face. I wanted to run, find some dark niche in the depths of the shelter, curl up there with my arms around my knees and scream and scream and scream. Instead, I unzipped my coveralls and shrugged them off my shoulders. The doctor breathed in, surprised. I don't think she really believed I would do it. She started with a blood pressure cuff, stethoscope, felt under my jaw, shoved her fingers in my mouth to pin down my tongue and examine the back of my throat, pressed in deep until I choked, coughing up saliva around her gloved hand. The tears were an involuntary physical reaction, but the doctor still stopped when she saw them. You have stage one radiodermatitis on your lower back, she said, quietly, uncomfortable with what she'd done. You should be on antibiotics. I didn't look at her. She said, I could give you some. I finished pulling on my clothes. Nice tattoo, she added. I have never hated anyone more. Nuptial, adjective. A PhD was enough to get me on the shelter list. To populate their arcs and presumably their post-flood world, the assignment boards fell back on the eternal determining factors of wealth, politics, sports, education, and presumed willingness to sleep with members of the assignment boards. Saf was a roofer, and we didn't have the money or influence to buy her a spot. Sometimes exceptions were made for married couples. We'd always planned on it in some hazy future tense, so we just moved up the timeline. Her dress was beautiful. She always kept her hair back in a French braid for work, but she wore it down for the ceremony, jet black and curling over her shoulders and collarbone. I knew there would never be anyone else for me. Our appeal was denied. Necrophilia. Noun. That voice. I know that broken, flayed, open voice. It's Sophia. Negotiate. 
Verb. I saw the doctor again today. I told her that I was still hearing things, and I couldn't go through that again. Never again. It would break me. Please, 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 could she give me something to help me calm down? Look, she said. She understood what I was trying to do, but sanity wasn't a requirement for the breeding program. She put her hand on mine, and the latex glove felt slick and rubbery. It made the touch clinical, antiseptic. How strange the details you cling to sometimes. The doctor said that she could, however, find me sterile. For a price, that is. Her hand moved a little higher, fingers edging under the cuff of my coveralls. If I got her meaning, that is. Thumb stroking the delicate tracery of veins on the inside of my wrist. I said I would have to think about it. She told me that was fine, but not to take too long. The offer has an expiration date. Nauseous. Adjective. I told the doctor, yes. Numb. Adjective. It wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Nitrogen narcosis. Noun. A condition divers can develop, causing a state equivalent to drunkenness. In my case, it's a result of taking considerably more than the recommended dose of anxiety medications. If you don't look too closely, sedation and rest feel pretty similar. It's only when I surface that I realize how far I've sunk, how much farther there is left to fall. I've been losing time, waking up in unused service corridors or utility closets. Missing check-ins with my overseer that only days before would have landed me a reactor assignment and reduced rations. I always wake up closer to the main door than I started. The scratching and distorted whimpers are harder to hear through the drug-induced fog, but still it calls to me. She calls to me. Maybe it's just the medication keeping me calm, but the thought doesn't scare me anymore. And when I fall asleep... Curled up in a ball at the base of the door, I have such vivid dreams. I see Sath out there in the wastes, surrounded by the blackened skeletons of buildings, each footstep kicking up a cloud of radioactive dust. She looks a little different now, without skin or hair, but I know it's her. I know she's been looking for me for so long. Neologism. Noun. The doctor says, darling, sweetheart, baby. Never my name, though she must know it from the medical records. She says, please. It makes me angrier than it probably should that she phrases her demands as requests. Expects us both to maintain the polite fiction that I have a choice in this, that I could refuse. I'm sure if you asked... She wouldn't say she's a bad person at all. When we finished, she stopped me from getting off the examination table with a hand between my shoulder blades. Her fingers left sticky trails that made me want to boil myself alive in the shower and scrub until I was raw and bleeding. Your radiation burns are looking worse, she said. Stage two at the least. I nodded hoping she'd read into it whatever response that would allow me to leave. 
The doctor reached into a drawer for ointment and cotton swabs, cleaned the sores and covered them with sterile gauze, which, of course, she felt entitled her to more of my gratitude. I left with her saliva cooling on my chest, a bottle of antibiotics clutched in my fist. I threw every single one of them into the incinerator. I just couldn't bring myself to throw the sedatives in two. Niche. Noun. I found the horticulturist crying in a service corridor, curled into herself, arms locked tight around her knees, trembling with unvoiced sobs. So quiet and small, I almost tripped over her on my way to the door. I caught myself on the railing, sliding down to sit by the opposite wall. The weeping sores on my back burned like acid as they pressed into the unforgiving surface. You fertile? I asked, as if I didn't know the answer. My words came out slurred. I may have drooled a little. She raised her head, and there was a brief moment of connection, born of shared suffering and circumstances, but only for a moment. Even through the stupor, I saw the calculation in her red-rimmed eyes, trying to decide which of us had it worse, whether I deserved pity and condescension or bitter envy. I don't remember which she settled on. It doesn't matter. It's not like I could really have comforted her either. We've all been atomized, reduced to designations and functions. Lepidopterist, horticulturist, sterile, fertile, non-essential. The service corridor was so narrow we were almost touching, but there was nothing left to bridge the space between. Nashama, noun. The doctor handed me a light-duty slip saying she was tired of my section leader complaining to her about my laziness, gave me what she must have thought was a fondly exasperated look. Left a pause she expected me to fill with gratitude, which I did because I needed the slip. Lately, I haven't been able to finish a full work rotation. Halfway through, my legs will give out and I'll stay slumped over on all fours until I find the strength to stand back up. My knees and elbows bruised the color of old blood. So I thank the doctor, but I know these attempts at kindness are more for her than they are for me. A good deed to balance the scales. An act of contrition for her wrongdoing. This is why the possibility of forgiveness is as much a reason to be a sinner as a saint. Without it, all the evil you've done lives on in you forever. Radium and regret, accumulating in your marrow, rotting you from the inside out. I spend my first rotation as a woman of leisure by the main door, the metal cold wherever it presses against my bare, feverish skin. The medication might be making things worse. She talks to me all the time now, words spidering their way through that gap between steel and concrete. Seth, I still love you too. I miss you too. I'd let you in if I could. Narrative. Noun. The overseer wants me to turn in a rough draft of my dictionary section for editing and revision. 
They'll slice it up and Frankenstein a new story out of the still twitching pieces of mine. One in proper alphabetical order where effect comes before cause and all my secrets are left naked and vulnerable. Or, more likely, they'll toss it into the incinerator and discipline me. This is the outcome I chose from the start. I could have made a regular draft with regular definitions. I could have even made two copies, one to give and one to keep. But no, I made a single draft, and I made it honest. Just once more, I wanted to be heard, to be understood. It's human, isn't it? After years of swallowing poison, I so desperately wanted to feel human again. I wonder what they'll do when I finally let them read it. I'm too weak for any punishment detail. Too weak to suffer much from reduced food or sleep. Maybe they'll just lock me in some dusty storage closet and forget, like they do with the other broken, useless tools. Maybe I would have been okay with that, comforted by knowing that I'd shown there was something in me they could never touch, never control. But not now. Not yet. Not while my wife is still howling at the door. I don't know if I believe in forgiveness. I don't know if I can make things right. But I have to try. For her. Nice. Adjective. The doctor has had me sleep in her bed more often. Getting the most out of her investment before I become physically incapable. She stopped trying to give me antibiotics just tapes the burns so they don't stain her sheets, and feeds me handfuls of pills for the pain. She doesn't know that I know, but she is already looking for a replacement. Maybe it will be the horticulturist. She's attractive enough, desperate enough, not interested in women, but I don't think little things like sexual orientation bother the doctor as much as they once did. The exhaustion never leaves me now. When I lie beside her, it would be so easy to close my eyes and wake up a few hours closer to the end. Easier still to not wake up at all. The doctor must be hoping that's what I'll choose. Take the problem off her hands so she can enjoy a newer model with a clean conscience. She leaves the cabinets unlocked. Leaves bottles of medication where a dying woman could reach. Their labels promise a lethal dose. A gentle, painless conclusion. She probably thinks she's being nice. But she doesn't get to define that word. I do. I think about radium and regret. About butterfly wings. About love. With a hand on the bed frame, I drag myself upright. The doctor doesn't stir. She takes more pills than I do. She could snore through a second apocalypse. Her room is in the overseer's division, not too far from the admin office. The code to the main door is in there, and I will find it. I will haul this body to its feet each night and every night until I do. I will see Saf again. Necrotic. Adjective. I think I'm approaching the end of this half-life. For a little while, the burns seemed like they were getting better. Now, 
The skin is peeling away, and my coveralls stick to the raw flesh beneath in wet, discolored patches. One of my molars fell out, leaving behind a sunken abscess that fills my mouth with the taste of pus and rot. I keep the tooth in my pocket, but I don't know why. My actions are becoming inexplicable to me. Since yesterday, I haven't been able to swallow more than a couple spoonfuls of reconstituted mash from the cafeteria, and even that I retched back up into my lap as watery, yellow bile. People watched. Not one of them helped me stagger back to the dorm. It wasn't my assigned rest period, and no mattresses were available. I collapsed onto the floor, too weak to strip off my soiled clothes. Cold with fever and damp with sweat, I lay there in the gloom. The dreams have started coming for me when I'm awake. I see Sophia waiting for me in some restaurant above, sitting at a faded red booth in the corner, sipping on a glass of wine as she glances at her watch. I see her scrabbling at the door with fingertips worn down to ragged shards of bone. Her tongue lolls out of the saw-edged ruin of her mouth, purple and glistening. Not much longer, Seth. I promise. I found it. Nascent. Adjective. The cement floor scraped the skin from my knees and palms as I crawled the last few feet to the keypad, now only just out of reach. My nails broke and ripped when I dug them into the wall for purchase, levering myself up to type and leaving behind bloody fingerprints on the numbers to the passcode. As I finished, the panel flashed green and klaxons wailed. The door quivered, its locking bolts disengaging, and it began heaving to the side with a groan of machinery and torment. I lost my purchase and fell to the ground. Lilacs breeding beneath my skin where I'd hit. I'm not dying. I know that now. This is my metamorphosis. My redemption. Through the widening gap between the door and the wall, I see the charred ribs of buildings silhouetted against a smoldering dawn. I see Saf. She's faceless and smiling. Her arms are open. Soon, I'll go to her. I'll slough off this cocoon of skin to be reborn under her hands. And we'll dance together in the ruins, our feet kicking up clouds of butterfly ash. But I'll leave this dictionary for you. Whichever non-essential the overseer is forced into a one-way repair run. Because I want you to know, it's okay. Everything is finally okay. Imagine a world where humanity is no longer top of the food chain, but reduced to scavengers and survivors, hiding from a threat, prey, 
It would seem like a pretty bleak scenario, right? But in this tale, shared with us by author Austin Gregg, we discover that companionship can still be found, however fleeting and tragic. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Kaya Lakers, Wafia White, and Atticus Jackson. So plant yourself down and sit back to listen to this tale as we get to the roots of Love in the Apocalypse. Belle and Tan. Unaware of their watcher, Belle and Tan load guns in their rowboat. They drift past the top half of a submerged streetlight as the water grows shallow. Behind them is a sunken city. Skyscrapers wade in water, and around them are smaller buildings, like drowned children, faces barely covered. HVAC units and rooftop patios spot the horizon. Belle stares at the makeshift tourniquet, then the bloody cotton-wrapped stump where Tan's hand used to be. You can do this. She scoops water out of the boat with a foam cup. It's a slow leak, but enough to make one person rowing a bitch. Tan adjusts the revolver in his lap, then fumbles another bullet into the chamber. They'd unwrap their guns from plastic shopping bags when the rain finally let up. Tan can't feel his injured arm anymore. The tourniquet is too tight. But he doesn't tell Belle. There's no reason to. It's only a matter of time for both of them. He knew they wouldn't die right off the bat, and they hadn't. But they'd had friends along the way. They're alone now. He doesn't want to speak for Belle, but he knows he won't last much longer. It's a tingling feeling in the back of his head and nagging to close his eyes. You hear me? You're gonna be okay. Tan opens his eyes. They both look awful. Belle's shirt is worn thin. His jeans are ripped. Both are covered in sweat and grime. He forces a smile. I know, love. The boat grinds against concrete as they slow to a stop ashore. Belle tightens the straps of her backpack and looks hard at the vines growing out of the water and up the road. They're as thick and pale as Tan's arm. The growths near or around water never attacked unless provoked. The dry growths, the ones coming out of soil, those were the ones to worry about. She turns to Tan. Should we run? Tan doesn't bother to look at the road. His eyes drift between the gun and his bandaged stump. I think you can make it. What? No, I'm not leaving you. You need meds. The infection, your fever, everything we need is there. Her black curls bob as she points to the hospital at the top of the hill. Everything we talked about is there. Do you see any light spell? He doesn't mean to sneer, but there it is. She looks to the hospital. A long stare, conjuring tears. What if they're keeping the fires out? Lanterns off. She had realized a mile out that this wouldn't be the haven they'd heard of. But hope kept her from talking. Why, Belle? Fires keep the growths back. If anyone was here, we'd see them. Like at the camps. Survivors or not, I'm getting what we need for you. 
You're going to be fine. Come on. He doesn't move. Belle, I'm not worth it. Shut up! Her expression is stone. He shakes his head. Belle, baby, I can't. He blinks back tears. And the only reason it works is because he's too tired to cry. He just wants her to make it. For him to be wrong. For their friends to be waiting for them like they'd planned. For them all to live on this little hill of safe, undrowned land. There was a grocery store only a few miles back, a safe one they had already cleared, stocked with at least a month or two of canned goods. No growths inside. If they're not here, I'll be back with supplies, and we'll wait for them. I'm sure they'll be here soon. Your gun loaded? He nods. She's nodding quickly as she kneels beside him and squeezes his hand. He lets go first. Nile. Nile knows he is dead and is convinced his lingering is punishment. He looks out the hospital window at two people who've just arrived by boat. Are they seeking shelter? Supplies? Both? It must be supplies because the woman, strong-legged with bouncing dark curls, comes alone. She sprints up the driveway over cracked concrete. Jungles of deadly growth line each side of the street. Is she fast enough to make it? Or is the garden humoring her? It must be. She's still alive. Finally. He wouldn't be seen, but this was another chance to speak with the living. At least to try to speak. To maybe, just maybe, find a way to rest. He isn't sure why he thinks speaking to someone will solve his lingering. Maybe it's all the television. Maybe it's all the paperback urban fantasies and paranormal romances he's read. There's no evidence to support the belief. But maybe she's different. Maybe she'd hear him. He knows his chance is real, as she leaps over the largest pile of creepers in her path. She's so fast, Niall isn't sure they could have got her if they wanted to. This means he also has to be fast. Niall turns from the window and pulls hard for his first step toward the stairs. His thighs blaze with rigid pain. The sensation of rigor mortis never left. And that's what moving through the afterlife feels like. Stiff, with motion hard to grasp. And once obtained, slippery and hard to stop. A world without traction. He stops and looks back at his room his momentum continuing to drift him toward the door. His corpse in the bed had bloated and leaked, deflated and shifted from red to green. The hair and nails are going now. He doesn't think of it as him because it clearly isn't. It's just a slow-melting shell, still holding the get-well card Mara had given him. Mara had painted violets on sepia watercolor cardstocks, Despite spending hours trying to manifest the energy to turn the card over for one last read, he wasn't sure he actually wanted to read it again. If today brings his chance at peace, he won't miss staring at that card every day. Over time, its reaching leaves and jutting flowers had developed a certain menace. Tan. 
Tan cries as Belle sprints up the hill. She's soon out of view, and Tan sinks back against the peeling emerald green of the rowboat. He looks at the stars and feels their weight. There's nothing to pray to. He can't help Belle if she needs it, and every second is a second he could watch her die. Would it be worse to see it happen? Or not? A growth could catch her ankle. A pile of vines might hold her still while a giant stalk bows and reveals its killer face to her. Belle would scream. Then she wouldn't. In the beginning, everyone seemed to have a theory about why people stopped screaming those last few seconds as the bloom descended. Maybe it was their decorative design. Some hypnosis. Meant to lure and silence prey. When the stalks had first sprouted from the ground, moving like time-lapse videos spilled into reality, Tan saw a woman entranced by one. A neighbor on the other side of the busy street was approaching a bloom in her yard. It looked like nothing more than a surprise sunflower in a strange purple. The woman had leaned into it, then screamed when it lunged. She'd stumbled back and fell. Even from that distance, Tan could see she was mesmerized in her final moments, entranced. Tan prays to the sky. He might as well, with the gun in his lap weighing him down like Thor's hammer. All he can do is pray. He prays his friends and family are okay, and that Belle comes back soon. Tan struggles to sit up. He hasn't heard Belle at all, but this far away would he? His brain feels like a rat's nest of crossed wires. Stuck in should-haves and would-haves as a fresh blot of blood grows on his bandaging. How fast would he die if he took it off? Was he brave enough for such a selfish gift? Bell. Bell rounds the corner and finds the hospital entrance. She looks back at the forest of growths on the path behind her. The stalks of the forest grow everywhere there is soil. The whippers and tendrils grow out of the street's cracks, like masses of Play-Doh pushed through a spaghetti accessory. None of them had lunged for her on the way in. Were they dead? Did the growths sleep? She hesitates to call them plants, thinking of what Tan had said adamantly one night around their campfire. They're not of Earth. Just can't be. Belle had disagreed with him. She had an idea about why there was so much rain. There had to be enough to soak deep enough to wake these things up. Belle wasn't sure which theory was worse. Belle pries open the automatic doors. They're some of the few she's seen in the city not smashed or ripped off the tracks. Was this because so few people ran for the hospital? Or was it because the floods and growths had made quick work of the city? She clicks her flashlight on and gets moving. The hospital is a gutted corpse of a building, the urban antithesis to the lush, growing doom outside. Belle walks past flipped waiting chairs and papers scattering the floor. If she has time, she'll collect as much paper as she can for future kindling. But first, there's Tan to attend to. She crosses the mosaic tile foyer and runs up a wide set of stairs, passing a toddler's shoe and a littering of medical gloves. She keeps her eyes on the ground in front of her, 
a well-earned paranoia. From what she remembers, the last time she was here, she was a child. The second floor held smaller pods of clinics. Hopefully there will be antiseptics and bandages, maybe antibiotics and painkillers. Her hope carries her through the search, but then she remembers Tan and the boat, his arm, his fever, and how hope had left his eyes. Panic sets in just as she finds a trove in a single closet. Rubbing alcohol, bacitracin, heavy heating painkillers and more. She opens her backpack and wishes it were bigger. Wishes she could carry the whole closet out with her, but decides to prioritize wound care and hopes to God they can get back into the building later. On the way out, the top of the stairs, she looks up and freezes. She missed it before. It's the first time she's seen this many. They were large enough outside, lining the walkway and looming over the building. She should have known they'd be inside too. The domed ceiling is a roiling ocean. The slick serpentine things writhe over a display meant to look like a starscape. Hundreds of little lights roll through a rainbow of colors behind the vines. Illuminating a deadly cosmic sea, Belle backs away slowly. She sees the panel on the far wall controlling the display lights. Three primary colored buttons meant for kids to play with. Was there a generator or backup battery? A single boa-like growth moves along the buttons. The tendrils above hang and sway within lunging distance. She has to find another way. She was lucky the first time. Nile. Nile watches the woman moving away from him, down the hall. Her pack is full. He was too slow. There's nothing he can do to coax her back. He can't move far from his corpse. The limit is the hospital's west exit, the opposite direction. He lets his legs give out and slumps against the wall like an old balloon sinks, bouncing gently as he glides to the floor. He's dressed the same way he died, in a fluffy blue robe Mara gave him the day he went in for his first treatment. It's huge on him because his weight stayed lost in death. Is Mara still alive? Is she struggling like this woman and her companion in the boat? Would it be better if Mara was dead? Lingering like him? Maybe then, if Niall ever pushes past the barrier keeping him so close to his corpse, if he ever figures out his own unfinished business, he could see her. Speak to her. The woman's footsteps echo down the hall. Each beat crushing Niall's last fragments of hope. But then the footsteps get louder, closer, faster. Niall looks up and sees the woman running toward him. He struggles to lift himself, pushing hard against the unseen veil around him. She blows past him before he's on his knees, flashlight making violent slashes through the darkness. The breeze following her brings hope. She's heading for the west exit, Tan. Tan's shirt catches hard on the boat's edge as the tendrils pull him. He can't feel the spot where the thin needle vine stuck him. He doesn't feel much of anything in his sleep. As the vine pumps a tepid liquid into him, 
clogging his sinuses with earthen odors and leaking over his eyes in a chartreuse glaze. He gags on it. His eyes flutter open and his mind emerges from feverish thoughts. He reaches for his gun. He can feel his fingers still working on a delay, struggling past the influence of the new blood. Bell. There are bodies on the ceiling in the west lobby. A young girl in a gown stretches her arms toward the face of a dead woman. Like an oil painting titled The Destruction of Eve, the bodies on the ceiling are a dead giveaway even before the slap, slap, slap of bare feet on the tile behind her. As she stops, so do the footsteps. Behind her it breathes heavy, sodden breaths. Belle's heart plummets and she moves a shaking hand for her gun and prays she's fast enough. She spins and aims. It pushes out its chest and runs. Dead arms flapping, gnashing its new mouth peeled back like petals. Six rapid shots. The whole revolver. The puppet falls forward and the long thin vine trailing behind it moves like a jump rope given a flick from where it had inserted itself between the shoulder blades of the corpse. Nile. The woman's hands shake as she stumbles away from the marionette she gunned down. She paces the length of the exit as she reloads her gun. She keeps expectant eyes on the corpse as its forest green blood engulfs the decorative planet Earth set into the tile. A gunshot echoes outside and the woman screams. Nile runs after her, but the veil thickens with each stride until he's stuck ten feet away from the glass doors and she's already out on the street. Just as he thought, the land is alive now. The growths bow to feast like floral jesters. This time, the woman doesn't get up to speed. Vines nip at her heels and she goes down. Nile pours everything he has into moving toward the doors. But the spiral world he is bound to has so much gravity. His world is the hospital. No matter how much he wants to save her, for her sake or his own, he's near powerless, making progress by inches at a time. Outside, the woman draws a small machete from her hip and starts hacking. She vanishes into the pale flesh of the vines. They start to drag her back to the building like they have with so many others. They'd wrap her tight for later. To be eaten or to be used as a doll. To lure other wanderers inside. Then she gets lucky. The machete hits one of the few larger growths. One of the purple ones. Throbbing like a post-marathon vein. All the plants shriek in unison, that shrill cry Nile couldn't stand when he was living. All the growths around the woman, in the building and up and down the road, recede. An entire system temporarily stunned. The woman claws at her ears and screams with them as the vines retreat. Her ears bleed as she stands. It's a war paint cascading down both sides of her face. Bell. No, he isn't. He can't be. Not him. I'm back, Tan. I made it. 
I have supplies. Maybe if... She rips the vines off Tan's body. There's so much blood. Her lungs draw sharp, uneven breaths. The back of her throat feels ready to leap out of her mouth as her stomach churns and she chokes out the hard consonants of half-curses. Her ears still ring. She knocks the bloody gun off his chest. Maybe if I get him in the boat. Her hands tremble as they float over his body, up and down, unsure where to touch. If she can touch. If she should. She looks for his wedding ring and chokes back a sob when she sees the tourniquet and remembers. She stumbles, ground blurry through her tears as she moves Tan's body toward the boat. With a grimy fist, she wipes her eyes clear to look at his face. Opaque eyes, mouth agape, all crusted with green. His blood-soaked chest doesn't move. A tendril wraps around Tan's ankle. She curses it and reaches for her blade. But she had dropped it. It's on the ground, out of reach. The growths are coming, slinking fast down the hill, one after the other, wrapping themselves around Tan and pulling. She holds his arm tight, but it isn't enough. She lets go. She falls into the boat and sends it wobbling out onto the water, and as she drifts away, she screams. And as she screams... The vines draw Tan deep into their earthly embrace. Nile. As the flora retreats to tend its wounds, Nile keeps pushing forward, inch by inch. The woman's cries echo up the hill. He pushes forward as agony cracks her voice. Why would you? How could you? In her cries, Nile hears Mara's agony. These are words she cried over him when he quit chemo and stopped fighting. He pushes harder and harder against the veil as he hears Mara begging, crying, demanding. Why would you? How could you? Nile weeps immaterial tears as the words I'm sorry fall cold from his lips. He falls forward through the unseen barrier, but the veil tightens around him again, dragging him back. He reaches out to the glass panes, reaches for Mara. He screams his repentance again, and the veil lifts. Bell and Nile. Each step for Nile gets easier as the veil fades. Each cry for forgiveness easier to ask. Mara is gone, he knows. And beyond his help, this woman is here and in need. The force binding his lingering to the place of his death is soon gone. It was his grief holding him there. He gains speed with ease as he runs down the hill to the woman in the boat. To his surprise, he slows himself with the same ease as he reaches the water. She's maybe six meters out. He wades in and finds relief that he doesn't need to remember how to swim. He glides across the water to her, and the boat isn't disturbed by this new, ethereal passenger. 
Niall learns her name is Belle as she curses herself for letting go, for not being strong enough. She lays flat on her back in a few inches of water. Her eyes are shut and her face is tight as she keens to an indifferent sky. The water carries them away from the hospital's hill. Streetlights sink, buildings are submerged, and the horizon flattens into a blue disk, reflecting the masses of greenery coiled around the structures still above water. Silent hours pass. Belle gets up only to bail water with a gas station cup. Niall breaks the silence with the only words he's said in a long time, but this time the words are for her. I'm sorry. She starts and her eyes flick back and forth over the water. Who's there? Tan? Niall's truth shreds on the ragged edges of her grief. This opportunity was his penance. Perhaps his salvation. I'm here. And I will never leave you. She breaks down, reaches to where she thinks his voice came from. And she's not far off. He moves into her outstretched arms, and she shivers. He would give her the full truth later, that he was not her lover. But for now, she needs something more. Something concrete she can hold on to as her world spins away. He gives her a true lie she can cling to. I'm here for you. Always. These days, war can take all forms. Regular violent warfare has been joined by cyber warfare, secret wars via espionage, infinity wars, all sorts, and of course, biological warfare. And in this tale, shared with us by author Sean W. Foley, we join a man facing a type of biological warfare we've thankfully never experienced, but one we might find somewhat familiar. Performing this tale is Mike Delgadio. So keep an eye on the news, an ear to the radio, but don't forget to look up to the skies, too. You never know what might come falling to earth on the last day of summer. It was September 6th, what should have been Labor Day. I looked around the hotel room and wondered how we ended up here. We weren't on a beach. We weren't making memories with our kids, at least not the usual end of summer kind. We were four people crammed in a small room in Seattle, Washington, our last stop between San Diego and Canada. It started two weeks ago. The news stories were all the same. The president was on a trip overseas... He was negotiating a denuclearization agreement. Then, overnight, he was lost. What does that even mean? 
How is a president lost? I think the whole country was watching the news the next day. TVs, computers, phones, we wanted answers and kept hitting refresh hoping we'd find them. Maybe we were supposed to be distracted? All I know is that it all went out. The internet, cell service, television broadcasts, all gone in an instant. In the days that followed, radio stations were commandeered to give us news. Nobody wanted to listen to music, we just wanted the information. The feeling of connection that we'd gotten so used to. We learned about a coordinated attack. Fire rained down on internet and cell service providers. It sounded almost biblical. When the television stations were up again, we saw the images. Hundreds of drones released a few pounds of sodium powder, destroying the pillars of the information age. We were back to listening to the radio and watching local TV broadcasts. We were scared. I bought a gun. My wife wanted us to leave. She didn't feel safe. She said Canada had a long history of accepting refugees. So, we started heading north. I guess that's what we are now. American refugees. We didn't know when we'd be back. If we'd be back. So, we tried to see our family as we traveled. A day in LA, a day in Sacramento, a day in Portland. We could only take what we could carry, so we stayed with family to ease the trip. We watched local news, heard what they were reporting in each city, and compared notes. Washington, D.C. was the first city to be blacked out. Then New York, Philadelphia, and the rest of the East Coast. Didn't make sense. Rumors were swirling, but all we knew was that no broadcasts were leaving that area. We wondered if they were bombed, blinked out of existence so journalists went to investigate. They didn't come back. The East Coast was like a black hole. You could send people into it, but no information came out. Chicago disappeared. Then Phoenix. We stopped saying goodbye and ran for the border. The reporters don't know what's happening to the cities that keep getting lost. Some reports have seen planes fly near them a day or two before they went black, but when you don't have satellites, phones. The news is just filtering rumors. My wife and I were watching the news when a plane was spotted heading towards Renton, about 12 miles away. Reporters were looking at the sky, trying to find something to talk about. Then all the stations cut to Channel 5 news. Tucker Johnson was first on the scene, describing what we were seeing as the camera followed a military transport plane. My wife watched the plane on TV And I looked out the window, waiting to see the mushroom cloud. A bright flash, loud noise, wave of heat, nothing else. We watched the plane, waiting for it to drop its cargo, a single bomb falling from the sky. That's not what we saw. It wasn't one payload, but dozens. The plane was sprinkling black specks that fell to the ground, but didn't explode. Tucker and his cameraman drove over to see what was dropped, and sirens sounded in the distance. He narrated and speculated during the unending car ride while maybe a million people watched, holding their breath. He got to the scene, and they weren't bombs. They were people. The camera showed a field littered with dozens of men in military uniforms. It it looked like it was a message, POWs that were dropped from the sky to warn us. 
An ambulance arrived and some of the soldiers started to move. The EMTs got out and my wife and I watched as the soldiers started to crawl. Their legs must have been shattered from the impact because they only used their arms to move. They started slowly, but they weren't struggling to drag themselves. The video showed dozens of men crawling quickly across the ground, converging on the EMTs. The first soldiers got to them and grabbed their legs, pulling them down. The EMT's legs were getting pulled towards the soldiers' mouths. The microphone on the camera picked up their screams. When the EMTs were down, some of the soldiers broke off and started crawling towards Tucker Johnson and the cameraman. They must have been in shock because they didn't move. You could see the soldiers digging their fingers into the dirt and pulling themselves forward, gliding across the ground. Their eyes were white and their teeth were gnashing as black liquid dripped from their mouths. When they were just 20 yards away from Tucker, he started to run, the cameraman following behind him. One of the soldiers must have gotten the cameraman because the camera flew through the air, landing on the ground with Tucker still in frame. The camera was jostled as the soldiers crawled past, getting to Tucker and pulling him down. We watched Channel 5's star being bitten and scratched as three soldiers gnawed on his legs. Then they stopped, cocked their heads like they heard something, and started to crawl off screen. A minute passed, and Tucker Johnson sat up. He started seizing, then crawling back towards the camera. His eyes were white, and black liquid peaked over the top of his lips. Channel 5 cut away from Tucker and started reporting more planes over Washington State. Linwood, Kirkland, Bellevue, each town had a plane dropping soldiers surrounding Seattle completely. Dozens of videos were played, each one telling the same story. Creatures crawling towards people, knocking them down, tearing apart their legs then all of them moving on to the next person. It was an hour after the first plane when I heard screams coming from outside. Our kids started to get scared, so we played some music for them to drown out the noise. We turned off the TV and played with them. They wanted to go outside, go for a walk, but we said it was going to be raining soon, that we should stay indoors. We played until they were exhausted, running and wrestling, hiding and seeking. My wife is curled up with the boys, and all three of them are sleeping on the bed. When I turn down the music, I can hear the sounds of bodies dragging down the streets. The screams stopped a few hours ago. I just sit and watch my family for a long time, just watching them sleep, hearing them breathe. I get up and walk over to our duffel bag, rummaging for just a minute before I find what I'm looking for. My boys had a good day. They don't know what's waiting for them outside. I load my gun, check the safety, and walk over to the bed. Now, they'll never have to know. Mysterious government conspiracies 
They've always been fuel for gossip and speculation. Some people buy into them wholeheartedly. Others refuse to accept the possibility. And in this tale, shared with us by author Bill Schwartz, one former government employee certainly won't accept the idea, even despite evidence to the contrary. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett and Jeff Clement. So don't get too carried away. Don't add two and two together to make five. But it wouldn't be a bad idea if you tracked the sirens. There's always been a need for the people who come and clean up the mess. Firefighters to put out fires, paramedics to take away the sick and the dying, cops for the lawbreakers and disturbers of the peace. That's just a fact of life. The natural result of too many people living too close together. Things happen, and the alarm must be sounded. In the past, that alarm might have been the town watch, or the bell in the church tower. But today, it is the siren. The mournful rising wail to call out the nameless threat, combined with the flashing blue and red lights atop a police car or ambulance. The siren loudly marks the border between chaos and civilization. When we hear one, we instinctively move aside, perhaps whispering a silent prayer as it passes. And when it is gone, we breathe a quick sigh of relief that this time it didn't stop for us. But in that, I think we're missing the point. The siren is more than just a warning. It's a reminder that there's still someone to watch that border, and to hold it if necessary. I don't find the siren disturbing. I'm not unsettled by any of its many calls. No. As long as they keep coming by, I know there's at least someone looking after things. It's when they stop that I begin to worry. It was the hottest summer I could remember. So hot that trees wilted and birds dropped dead out of the sky. Every time I left the house, I could feel it weigh down on me. The air thick and still and full of dust. But people didn't want to talk about the heat, or the traffic, or the start of baseball season. They talked, or whispered more like it, about the sirens. How they seemed to be going by all the time, way more than they used to. About how you'd hear two, three, or four sirens go by every day, and never see where they were going. They talk about seeing them pass each other on the highway. All sorts of vehicles with different markings and different colored lights, clusters of them going in different directions. And then one group following after the group that had just passed, trying to catch up. They'd say the shield on some patrol car didn't look quite right or that they'd seen a fire truck with no hoses and armed men riding in the back. They'd say there were vehicles that came out at night with no markings at all, black all over, with just the siren and flashers. Everywhere you went, that was the talk. As for me, I didn't put much stock in it. After all, who's to say that that summer was substantively any different from the summer before? unless you're out there counting ambulances and police cars every year, writing down the numbers in a ledger somewhere, then you really don't know, do you? 
But people want that drama. They want to feel like they're surrounded by invisible conspiracies, that there's something special about this moment in time. The horrors of fluoridated water or fiat currency are better than the reality that we will live short, unremarkable lives and then disappear, unremembered except maybe by a few friends and family. So people would jump whenever a siren went by and say there's definitely more this year. Definitely. And I would let them talk. Because what's the harm? I will say this, though. There were sirens that summer. It was noticeable. It didn't bother me much, but sometimes the noise was enough to drive the dog crazy. It would start off in the distance, rising, getting louder by the second, and pretty soon he'd have his snout in the air and be howling like it was the end of the world. I'd have to throw a shoe at him to get him to shut up. But that's just how dogs are. People ought to know better. I had a neighbor back then, Glenn. He lived next door in a little two-bedroom with a young wife and a couple of kids. Jumpy sort. One day we were out by the fence, just shooting the breeze like we did back then, when a truck went by blasting its siren. It played a slow rising note as it approached, then switched to a faster cadence as it passed the Cork Street intersection, blowing its horn as it ran through the four-way stop. I couldn't quite make out what sort of truck it was, whether it was an ambulance or fire truck or something else, but it didn't look particularly sinister, at least not to me. But Glenn stared at it intently, like it was some kind of puzzle that he couldn't work out, but couldn't put down either. After it passed, he gave me a kind of sidelong look. Where do you suppose that one's going? I wasn't really thinking about it. It was over a hundred again, and I was sweating through my shirt. I don't know. The hospital, I guess. No. Those ones don't go to the hospital. I squinted at him over the fence. What do you mean, they don't go to the hospital? Where else would they go? That's what I'm asking. And what I'm telling you is that they go to the hospital, or the police station, depending on the circumstances. When you get sick, they take you to the hospital. When you do wrong, they come and take you to the station. <coughs> I coughed a little into my shoulder. There'd been a lot of talk on the news lately about a bad summer flu going through the nursing homes. But up until then, I hadn't thought too much about it. Maybe there's something going around. Maybe that's what this is. No. There's more to it than that. Something's going on. Glenn took a big look all around and then sort of ducked his head like he was in a spy movie or something. He beckoned for me to come closer. Stifling a grin, I did, until we were practically cheek to cheek with the fence running between us. Listen, you know St. Michael's, right? I nodded. St. Michael's Hospital was just a few blocks away, over on Cork Street. Yeah, well, remember yesterday? How it was even worse than today? Eleven sirens. I counted them. Eleven? That seems like a lot, right? I don't know, I guess. Of course it does. It was all day with the noise. Anyway, with all those sirens, you'd think that at least a few of them would have stopped at St. Michael's. I mean, it just stands to reason. But here's the thing. Around five o'clock, I went to check it out. Sure enough, 
the driveway in front of the emergency room was empty. Just one ambulance sitting there with a couple of EMTs leaning on the front bumper smoking cigarettes. Well, what do you make of that? I pushed back from the fence. Mosquitoes buzzed in a little cloud around our heads. I smacked at one on the back of my neck. Missed. I don't make anything of it. If they weren't at St. Michael's, then they must have gone somewhere else. Northridge or Central. But St. Michael's is right there. Why would- Glenn, I don't know where they went, or why there weren't a dozen of them piled up at St. Michael's, and honestly, I don't care. It's not my business. I folded my arms and looked at him through my brows. It's not your business either. What you need to do is stop following those guys around. They got hard enough jobs as it is. Can you do that for me? Sure, of course. Only... You'd tell me if you knew anything, right? You used to work for the state, didn't you? You'd know if something was going on, wouldn't you? I mean, you must still keep in touch. I scowled and wiped the sweat off the top of my head. Going bald. I guess there's nothing for it. There's nothing to know, Glenn. And anyway, I'm retired. Been retired for a long time. But you'd tell me if there was. Promise you'd tell me? Sure, why not? Just then, Bessie, Glenn's youngest, came out into the yard crying about something her brother had done. He lifted the squirming girl up into his arms and rubbed his bristly chin against her face, setting her to peals of laughter. Some of the tension drained from his face. All right. I guess I should be heading in. But remember what I said, okay? I shrugged and smiled pleasantly. But as he turned to go, another siren went by. Close. He sort of ducked his head and pulled the girl closer as he crossed the weedy lawn, and then gave me one last look over his shoulder as he opened the door to his house. I just waved and went back inside to catch the rest of the game. Anyway, it wasn't as bad as Glenn made it out to be. Even the dog got used to it. After a while, he just started ignoring the noise. Whenever one came by, he just lay there on the couch, curled up in a little bowl. He was fine. Sure, there were days when the power was out, or the cable was out, or I couldn't get any bars on my phone. The power grid and the phone system are complicated things, and sometimes complicated things break down. It doesn't have to mean anything. And yes, it's irritating to have to go without air conditioning for a few hours in the heat of the day, when it has to be at least 105 out there. But eventually it comes on again, and we're back to normal. And look... If there really was anything serious going on, why wasn't it on the six o'clock news or in the papers? Why hadn't anyone called me? But on the TV, it's the same old stuff. A fire downtown, some celebrity picked up for drunk driving, a kid's choir singing at a retirement home, no mention of the end of the world. I tried explaining that to Glenn. We were out by the fence again, listening to the traffic, when I put it to him. Well then, why isn't anyone blogging about it, or tweeting, or whatever? I don't really use any of that nonsense, but I figured that Glenn probably did. He was the type. I do. 
I'm on the web every day posting things. Pictures, descriptions, timetables, you name it. All I ever hear back is non-committal comments like, oh, weird or good post, keep in touch. No one says anything real anymore. It's just a lot of vacuous crap. I might as well be talking to a bunch of bots. Bots? Bots are... <laughs> Never mind. He tried to fan himself with his shirt. Then he glanced over to the street, following my look. A group of homeless, a man and a woman and two kids, were making their way up Pike, lugging backpacks and pushing two strollers, one piled high with gear, the other with a light blanket draped over it to shade a baby. The two kids had strayed onto the edge of Glen's lawn, and the younger one, a boy of about four, with a wide tangle of red hair and a deeply freckled face, stooped to pick up a stick. Glenn muttered something under his breath, and the homeless man called out to the boy in a harsh but strengthless voice. I didn't know what they thought they were going to find in our neighborhood, these people. They wandered through like ghosts, sometimes alone, sometimes in groups like this one, never stopping, never saying anything to anyone except maybe to ask for a handout. The boy dropped the stick and returned to his parents. Doesn't it seem like there's more of them? I mean, where do you think they're going? His voice trailed off, and his mouth dropped open. I followed his staring gaze upward. Up above, the sky was crisscrossed with a web of contrails, dozens of them intersecting at near right angles, making a sort of grid pattern, as if a giant net was dropping down on us. Damnedest thing I ever saw. I stepped back to get a better look between the trees. The lines stretched from horizon to horizon. For a moment, the world seemed completely still. The air perfectly calm. Even the cicadas seemed to stop buzzing and hold their breath. Then the loud crack of a sonic boom rent the atmosphere. Rattling windows and setting off car alarms up and down the block. Down the street, the homeless family was staring up at it, too, the kids pointing excitedly while the woman's shoulders shook with what looked like sobs. Glenn jumped back from the fence and practically ran over to his porch, head down like he was being strafed. I just stood there, shaking my head, with my hands over my ears. A second siren started up, then a third. They wailed away off in the distance, rushing towards a new pillar of smoke rising on the horizon. Glenn yelled something at me from his porch, something I couldn't quite make out because of all the noise. He was gesturing frantically, like he needed something from me. I just waved back, probably best to let things calm down before engaging with him. Glenn was a pretty decent guy, but he did have a tendency to go off the deep end, if you let him. Then, there wasn't any more milk. The stores just stopped stocking it, like people didn't want to drink it anymore. Like we were finally done with milk. Strawberries and avocados got scarce, too. And forget about finding any of that fancy shit like asparagus or kiwis. One time I went to the supermarket, can't remember whether it was late June or early July, 
and all they had in the produce section was green peppers and yams. The next week, it was cucumbers, just rack after rack of them. People complained about it, sure. They'd grumble as they stood around in front of the empty dairy coolers, like it's somebody's fault that there isn't any cottage cheese in the bin. But there isn't any one person to blame, is there? You can't put it on the grocer or the trucker or the dairy farmer. They all want to get that cheese to that shelf. But sometimes things don't work out just the way we want them to. Like I said, these are complicated systems. And really, it wasn't that big a deal. There was still beer, there were still hot dogs, and cans of Pringles and soup, and all the mini frosted donuts you could ever hope to eat. So what was the problem? Seemed to me things weren't too bad all in all. Not too bad at all. Three doors down, the blue house with the tire swing. That was the Lissandros. He used to coach the kids' soccer team. They disappeared three weeks ago. Disappeared? Come on, they're gone, that's all. Another siren went by, close. Glenn tapped the top of the fence with the bottle opener he kept on his keychain, waiting for it to pass. That's right, they're gone. Not a word to anyone that they were leaving. No sign of a moving van, nothing. They just disappeared. I ticked off my points on my fingers. Well, maybe they didn't tell you they were leaving, and maybe you didn't see a moving van, but that doesn't mean those things didn't happen. You weren't exactly tight with the Laderas. Lissandros. And yes, you're right, I wasn't close with them. I never could figure out why he kept them in matching tracksuits all the time. It was like the magnificent Ambersons over there. So I asked around. Nobody knows where they went. And nobody saw a moving van. I'm telling you, someone came and got them. Like one of those trucks that's always driving around. One of them could have done it. It could have pulled up to their house in the middle of the night. It was getting to be every day with this crap. <sighs> Did you see it? Did anyone... Glenn shrugged, but didn't answer. I stepped back and squinted at him. No, of course not. You asked around, huh? Yes, I asked around. I'm tired of not knowing what's going on. The way he was looking around, he'd have thought there was a pack of wolves circling the yard. But no, it was just him and me. He leaned in, over the fence. Up close, his face was lined and drawn with several days' growth of beard. Look, it isn't just the Lissandros. It's the Kriegs from over on Pike. The Morrisons. The Garcias. Their kids went to the same daycare as mine. The Robs. All gone. People leave, Glenn. That's life. And sure, they were neighbors. You see them around. You say hello when you see them on the street. But can you say that you were close enough to any of them? Any of them? That they would feel like they had to tell you they were leaving? No, but don't you think it's a little strange that... It isn't strange, Glenn! It's just people getting on with their goddamn lives! I might have said this last bit a little too loud, because Glenn's eyes got big and round, almost like he was about to cry. I put up an apologetic hand. 
Look, all I'm saying is, you don't know. And if you don't know, why assume the worst? What if there really is nothing going on? What if this is the way it's always been? He rubbed his eyes with the palms of his hands. Now you're just trying to mess with me. It can't have always been like this. I mean, it just... it can't. This year is different. It's different. Another siren started up nearby. We stood there awkwardly, waiting for it to pass. Glenn tapping the top of the fence. For a second, it looked like he was going to head in. But he stopped, and instead beckoned me closer. They won't open the schools. I know it's only July, but you watch. They're going to keep them closed. I shrugged. So, what if they do? Kids will be happy, right? Glenn stared at me for a second, his mouth half open. Then, quick as a curtain falling, his face went blank. He stepped back from the fence, and without another word, turned and went back into his house. There were fireworks on the 4th. I watched it on TV. There was an orchestra that played all those great old Sousa marches, and that one song at the end with all the cannons. The explosions unfolded like red and gold flowers on the screen, up to the final climax where they sent a stream of rockets into the sky in one roaring barrage, loud enough that it echoed through the thin walls of my house. They say it isn't the same as being there in person, but I don't know. Sitting there in the darkness of my living room, I felt like I could almost smell the smoke and burning cordite and hear the delighted screams of the children. Afterwards, they showed some old reruns of a 70s sitcom, and then the cable went out. I fell asleep in my chair, watching the static ghosts chase each other across the screen. Eventually, Glenn moved out. Him and his family. Well, I couldn't say I didn't see it coming, with the way he kept going on. But it was strange he never said anything to me about it. Or wait, maybe one of those trucks came by and moved him out, just like he said. As if I wouldn't have noticed a big black truck with sirens blasting pulling up next door in the middle of the night. As if they have nothing better to do than haul off Glenn's stuff. Anyway, now his house is boarded up like all the others. The lawn's overgrown with weeds, hiding the outline of an old tricycle, an upended charcoal grill. Couldn't tell you where they ended up going. The summer went on, one hot day melting into the next, without ever a sign of rain. Sometimes I'd walk the dog down Pike, past Glenn's house and the Kriegs and the Lissandros. Nothing but boarded-up houses with a few empty boxes in the front yard, some broken glass in the driveway. There wouldn't be a hint of movement anywhere but for the swinging of my arms, not a breath of wind. The buzzing of the cicadas would echo from the knobby-limbed live oaks and red elms, sounding like something angry in the world. It felt like the world was shrinking, emptying out, as if I could walk to the end of the earth in an afternoon and not meet a soul on the way. Even the homeless were gone. They'd vanished like all the rest, slipping away through the back alleys and empty parking lots to some other place, 
taking their shopping carts and hooded, reproachful looks with them. Everywhere it was quiet and noisy at the same time. Heavy, black-sided trucks rumbling down the deserted streets, while overhead, thrumming, thick-bodied machines disappeared into banks of clouds. If anything was happening, it was happening just out of sight, just off the edge of the screen. Sometimes I'd get the urge to follow one of those trucks, just like Glenn had done, to see where they went. But no, it was too late for that. There came a time when I stopped going out at all. I was tired of all the heat and noise, the horizon dark with smoke, the air that smelled of burning. So I hunkered down. I held fast. It was too much for Glenn, too much for the Kriegs and the Lysandros, too much for the dog, even, who ran off one night and never came back. But I stayed. I had the television and the radio if I felt like keeping an eye on things. I could watch my favorite show or catch a baseball game. And if it seemed like there was nothing but reruns or that the playoffs were always just around the corner, that was probably just a flaw of memory. No need to go to the store because I already had enough beer and hot dogs to see me through. No need to take the trash out because they stopped picking it up some time ago. Just dump it out the window into the yard. Things worked themselves out. I held down the fort, because that's what you do. Then one day, the heat finally broke. A line of thunderclouds filed in from the east throughout the afternoon, filling the air with electricity and the faint smell of the ocean. The wind picked up as the sun went down. There was a crack and a boom in the distance followed by the wail of sirens. I turned on the TV to check the news, but the cable was out. I flicked on the living room lights. The dust thrown by the wind threw halos around the light bulbs, making everything sepia-toned and strangely still. A light tapping on the window marked the first drops of rain to fall since before Memorial Day. Just a light spattering at first, but gaining in intensity. Another loud boom, and the storm hit in earnest as the wind pushed sheets of rain into the side of the house. A truck, or a line of trucks, passed down the street, sirens wailing into the storm. I rushed to the front window to see, but all I could make out through the rain-blurred glass were black shapes and flickering blue and red lights. The wind howled through the gaps around the windowsills, and hail battered the tin roof of my house, filling the house with the sound of chattering teeth. About thirty minutes in, the lights went out with a snap and a whiff of ozone. The sirens rose and ebbed and rose again in frantic waves, coming from all directions at once as I circled from window to window trying to see them, to make out their shape. In the din, I thought I could make out the deeper note of the town's tornado siren, so I made my way into the bathroom because it seemed the safest place. With only a small flickering candle, I settled into the bathtub fully clothed and hummed to myself a song that had been popular many summers ago, when I was younger and stronger and free of doubt. Stay away from windows during a storm. That's what my daddy told me when I was a boy. Never been in a storm like this. 
He had never felt the need to see become as strong as the need to hide. Outside, there was a roaring of many voices, lost and afraid, of some terrible engine that raged and shook the house. Did I hear helicopters flying low over the treetops? In this weather? Impossible. Through the howling wind, I thought I could make out the sound of distant, amplified voices. Orders being spoken over a loudspeaker, it sounded like, though I couldn't recognize the words. Was there a pounding at the door, the sound of dogs barking? If so, I didn't get up to answer. In the dark, I could feel the vibrations of footfalls, of fingers scrabbling against the walls of my house. Was there a crowd of ragged forms making their way across my front lawn and down the street, weeping and cursing, going through my trash cans and stripping the trees of their bark? Did some clutch babies to their chests and plead to the heavens? Was there the cough of machine guns, the sound of distant screams? Was there? Was there? I sat in my tub and waited. For what? I didn't know. final tale, we join a boy and his father living in a rural farming area in the U.S. They're close with the others who live around here, even if not so much by proximity. It's often that way in sprawling communities like that. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jerry W. McKinney, we discover how terrifying it can be when those close to you start acting strange. Very, very strange. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Jesse Cornett, and Sarah Thomas. So remember, look out for your neighbors. Why not invite them over for a bite? Treat them like family, even if they're not your flesh and blood. I watched as Tipper died. It hadn't been a clean shot, and he almost screamed before falling and writhing on the floor of the barn. The chain that bound him to the post dragged behind, clinking out the spasms with a metallic sound. His muzzle left a trail of foaming drool on the dark floorboards. My 15-year-old fingers still wrapped around the trigger of the rifle. Paul put his hand on my back as I fought the tears. He reached across my shoulder and took the weapon. It didn't seem to take the weight off my heart. He cocked the firearm and quickly shot Tipper in the head. My pet's agony was over. I could no longer hold back the pain I felt. The anguish a boy shouldn't have to deal with. I'd rather die than to suffer that feeling again. Rather die. 
It had to be done, boy. I looked up at Pa's weathered face. His soft blue eyes seemed so out of place under his heavy brow. The creases in his skin looked deeper than I had ever remembered them. I think we both aged a few years on that day. I knew he was right. Tipper had gone rabid. We had chained him inside the barn the day after he was bit. Pa said it was probably a raccoon or a possum that got him. There were always a few sick animals wandering around the fields at night, but we hadn't known for sure, so we chained him. I fed and made sure he had water for pretty near two months. He had howled every night. Just lonesome, I speck. I'd go in and ruffle the fur on top of his head. His tail wagged so fast it was a blur. Pa had gotten so angry when he saw that I was within the boundary of that chain. He yelled so loud and then grabbed me in a hug. He was shaking. I tried to tell him Tipper was fine and we could let him go, but he said it was still too early. Tipper started getting sick. I hadn't told my father at first. I mean, maybe he just had a cold from sleeping in his barn instead of the rug at the foot of my bed. I told myself that for two days until he went mad. Jumping and testing the strength of the chain as I entered. I stood in the doorway while my pet growled and snapped at the air, slinging frothy spittle. I went to the house and got Pa. He grabbed his rifle and walked back down to the barn with me. When we got to the door, he handed me the weapon. I looked up at him with shocked eyes. You gotta take care of your own, boy. But... Once I saw his face, I knew there was no need in arguing. It was my dog. My burden. He helped me bury Tipper after a short, respectful moment. We dug the hole together, and after he hauled my pet's body into it, he walked away. I'm glad he did. I didn't want him to see me cry. The pain in my heart. My weakness. When I finished filling the grave, I went into the barn. Paul was hosing away the blood and the dog's mess from the night. Daylight filled all but the darkest corners of the barn. The horse tromped around in its stall as I passed. Paul looked up. Come here, boy, and then rinse your face. Then tend to the horse. Life goes on. Remember that. Yeah. Life goes on. We lost my mother a few months later. She was never a large woman, but always handled her share of work. A hot breakfast and a good dinner were a necessity when working on a farm. And after my chores, she would drive me into town for school, singing to the radio. I hadn't heard some of the songs before, but it, it always made me feel good. Sometimes at home, Mom would play the radio loud and dance while doing her housework. She dropped me off one day, and a rock truck silenced her songs forever. No 
no one picked me up that day. I walked the seven miles to the farm. Paul was working in the field and I looked for mom. He finished the acre he was in and parked the tractor in the shade of the barn. Then he rinsed his face. Funny. I had never seen him do that before. Funny. Life goes on. We managed the fall harvest that year. I had to drop out of school until harvest ended. I can make it up over summer. There were a few families like that around here. Farms were hit hard during this recession thing I'd heard about. We had a few field hands, but couldn't afford to keep them year-round, so Paul relied on me more to help fill the spot Mom left. My cooking skills weren't the best, yet my father never complained. Having cleaned up the dishes, we'd sit at the table and play cards. Mostly, we talked. A man had plenty of time to think while working the fields every day. The droning of the engine would be forgotten, and Pa said it was like his body going on autopilot as his mind took him away. He often spoke of his hopes and fears while dealing the cards. I'd listen and daydream of being someplace other than the farm. Dreams came hard on a farm. The future wasn't pretty because farms were handed down to the sons. So basically, this was what I had to look forward to. Dirt and seed. It was a necessary position to fill for the country's needs. Not for mine. I saw the jets stream across the skies, leaving tracks of white in their paths. National Geographic magazine once had a bird's eye view of a farmland. Green rows checkerboarded across the hills. You could even see a tractor plowing up some land in the distance. That's what it looked like from up there. Down here, it was just dirt and sea. Mr. Morsley was in the field that morning. He was our closest neighbor, and yet he still lived a mile or so away. I'd often gotten a ride from school with him if he passed me walking home. Dad would always take me to school right after my chores, but it was up to me to get back. So whenever I saw that old white pickup with the Morsley Farm magnet hanging from the driver's door, I was relieved. He'd have the radio belting out some twangy country music and a line of tobacco juice running down the creases of his mouth. The truck stank like beer and man sweat, but it was much finer than the long walk home. He had a son who still lived with him. Pa said he was slow. I didn't understand what that meant. Heck, Mike Morsley was pretty near 30 and could run like the wind. He just liked to play games and laugh. When I got a pocket knife for Christmas last year, I taught Mike how to play mumbly peg. It was fun until he threw the blade into my foot. I limped around a couple of weeks, but I never told. They would have sure taken away my knife, and he didn't mean to do it. When Mom died, I found a pickle jar full of wildflowers on the porch. Flowers were half dead and their stems were broken, but they were beautiful. Though Mike wasn't the smartest fellow in the world, he sure was thoughtful. I was coming out of the chicken coop with some eggs for our breakfast and looked across the horizon. The solid line of the distant land was interrupted by a single figure. 
I could tell by the man's walk it was Mr. Morsley. I could also tell he was naked. I ran over to my father and told him. He was hand-pumping fuel into the tractor. Topping her off to finish the job, he traversed the yard wiping his hands on a rag. He studied the site for a moment. Mr. Morsley was still on his ambling trek across the field. What's the matter with him, Pa? You go and get your breakfast. I'll be back to take you to school. Looks like Morsley might need a hand. He went into the barn and grabbed a horse blanket. Even in the company of men, a fellow deserves some dignity. The flatbed truck, still half-loaded with hay bales, sat in front of the barn. I often drove it around the farm to help out. The driver's door squealed as Paul got in. A gun rack in the back window held a shotgun. I had only fired it once to kill a rattlesnake, and it gave me quite a bruise on my shoulder. But on the farm, a fella needed to be ready for anything. It was all kind of dangerous stuff. Swinging the gate for my father to drive through, I watched a trail of dust behind the truck as it crossed the field before I entered the house. Gazing back, I saw him stop near the man, and then I closed the door. There were a few slices of ham from the previous night wrapped in plastic inside the fridge. I was throwing him on some bread when I heard the distinctive sound of a shotgun. The noise drifted over the field. Dropping the sandwich, I turned towards the door just as Mike Morsley came in. Hey, Mike. You know you're supposed to knock. <sighs> the man was hurt. Actually, I didn't know how he was standing. His throat was ripped out, leaving ragged flaps of skin that swayed as he moved. My eyes grew wide in disbelief. His breathing whistled from the hole in his neck. Mike? Christ, Mike! He looked at me with eyes that held no recognition. A graying face and lips the color of coal peeled back to almost perfect teeth. He grunted, the sound making a spray of blood and spit fly from his wound. Then he leapt towards me, only to be stopped by the kitchen table that groaned against the floor under his weight. I backed up to the stove. The tears flowed from my eyes as I saw my friend push himself up from the table and, in an almost afterthought, look at me. Mike never took his eyes off me, continuing to walk. The table between us scraping strides across the wood floor. I searched a nearby drawer until I found the biggest knife and held it out in front of me. The blade shook in fear as I tried to control my hand. A long line of drool dribbled from his dark lips onto his chin as he pushed against the far side of the table. I stabbed at his hands as they came into reach of his outstretched arms. Even though the blade ripped into his hands and arms, he didn't seem to care. The air exploded in a wave of sound and blood. Mike's head 
disappeared. Pa was at the doorway, lowering the shotgun from his shoulder. Mike fell, his arms slapping the top of the table before following the rest of his body to the floor. I looked down at my blood-covered arms and dropped the knife. Descending from my hand, the blade balanced on its tip before clattering into the spreading blood on the table. I ran to my father. His shirt was torn, and I could see his chest rise and fall as he fought to catch his breath. The shotgun in his left hand, he pulled me close with his right and hugged me. The bottoms of his jeans were soaked in blood. Paul gave me a look over. Did he hurt you, boy? I lifted my face to his. No. Why'd he do that? He was my friend. Exhaling sharply through his nose, my father's hand shook as he brought it up to his face and wiped his brow. Dunno. His father was the same way. He attacked me as soon as I got out of the truck. He was messed up. Messed up real bad. I climbed back up in the truck, but he wasn't riding ahead and kept pounding and snapping his teeth at me from the other side of the glass. Do you think it's rabies? Clive Kinson at school said there'd been a lot of it going around again. My father considered for a moment. I don't think so. I just saw him last week and he was fine. Rabies don't change a man that quick. You run out to the barn and give one of those tarps. I'm gonna call the sheriff. I nodded and turned towards the door. Jesse? Here. Take this with you. And be careful. He handed me the shotgun. The weight of the weapon seemed to have doubled since I used it to shoot the snake. Sure felt like it. I walked to the door and stopped. Through the screen came the smells of the farm. Wind blew a small dust devil in front of the barn, which spun away quickly to the field. You think there's others, Pa? I don't know. Now you run along and fetch that tarp. Stepping out into the yard, I was aware of every movement, every sound. I stopped and listened. The breeze cut across the plowed acres without anything to stop it. It echoed in my ears. The chickens continued their noisy squabbles over food, and the horse snorted his dislike for being so late in the stall. Yeah, everything seemed so ordinary. I shifted the gun in my hands and went to the barn. The smell of fresh hay hung in the air heavily. I went to the rear shelves where we stored the supplies and found an old blue tarp stacked on a pile of silver ones sealed in packages. I tucked it under my arm and swiveled to leave, until my eyes rested on the chain that was still attached to the post. It had been pretty near a year, but I couldn't take it off. When I returned to the house, Paul was hanging up the phone. Clearing his throat, his eyes met mine. I could tell he didn't like what he had heard. 
I handed him the tarp, and without a word, we rolled Mike's body into it. When's he coming? He isn't. Now grab that end. Paul motioned with his head to the other side of the tarp. I walked to the opposite side of the roll, happy I didn't have to lift the other, which was now sitting in a small pool of blood. I picked it up by the ends of the tarp and helped my father lug it to the truck. Why is he not coming? Here there were two dead bodies and the sheriff wasn't interested? That just didn't make sense. Paul leaned on the tailgate of the truck. I never talked to him. Somebody else answered the phone. I don't know who. The fellow wasn't talking right. And there was screaming and yelling in the background. And then he said, everything's gone. And he hung up. I watched my father's shoulders slump a little that day. I'd never seen it before. He was unsure what to do next. He stared at the ground for a bit and opened his mouth to speak. Thought for a second, then shut it again. So, what are we gonna do, Pa? don't know. What about Sarah? I hope she's alright. My father glanced down at me with realization in his eyes. Go to the truck. Bring the shotgun. Sarah was Mr. Morsley's niece. She had a little trouble with her parents and they sent her to help out with Mike. I'd never seen a girl with so many tattoos. I guess those city girls are a bit different than the ones around here. But she sure was pretty. When she looked at me with her green eyes, I had a funny feeling in my gut. Kinda like when you drive over a hill real fast. She was the only one who ever made me feel like when Mike had shown me one of Mr. Morsley's magazines. The lady in it was naked and stretched out on a bed. I got to inspect it only a minute until we were caught. I went home that day quickly while Mike got yelled at. Paul drove fast to the Morsley farm. Nothing seemed unusual except that the door stood wide open. Long tracks of blood streaked down the white paint like someone was trying to get in. Appeared they did too. Skip, Mike's black lab lay in the dust of the driveway. The dog's side was ripped open to the bone. A swarm of flies flew up into a small cloud as my father stopped the truck before settling back down on the carcass. You wait here. If anyone, and I mean anyone, comes and tries to get inside the truck. You shoot him. You hear me, boy? But, Pa... Hush now. And lock the doors. I'll be right back. He got out, 
watched me secure the locks and walk slowly towards the Morsley house. I surveyed the yard. It could have been any other day. Nothing was different. Nothing at all. My father stood on the porch peering into the doorway and then he went in. A light breeze blew across the tops of the field in waves. The earth could dance better than Fred Astaire sometimes. The wind twisted and turned the fresh grasses in wondrous patterns. I would sit down at my window as storms blew in and watch nature showing me how powerful my world really was. The glass rattling in its frame protected me from the moving air outside. But it had never felt this small before. So insignificant. I pressed my nose against the glass of the door and peered into the gloom of the Morsley's house. After a few minutes, my father reappeared in the entryway and motioned for me to come. I climbed out and stepped on the dirt of the driveway. Reaching into the truck, I grabbed the shotgun by the stock and carried it to the house like Pa had shown me. By your side and barrel up, he'd always said. And there will be no accidents. The porch steps were red with blood. She in there, Pa? I think so. Got herself all locked up in the bathroom, and she won't open the door. And maybe you can talk to her, get her to unlock it. Okay, I'll try. Now, before we go in, there's a body in the living room. Don't look if you can help it. He's pretty torn up. I think it's Bo Grant from up the road. You just keep walking with your eyes straight. He can't hurt you. I followed my father inside where the gloom attacked me and squinted to make out the shapes of the furniture in the foyer. The antique grandfather clock in the living room chimed the hour, filling the house with sound. It seemed so normal. As my eyes adjusted, I seen Mike's trail boots placed carefully together at the door. He was so proud of those boots when he got them for his birthday last week. Now they stood, waiting for feet that would never jump or run in them again. Come on, boy. I don't want to be in here any longer than necessary. I did as I was told and didn't even look into the living room as we passed. I must admit the room had a smell to it. Not real strong, but I didn't want to remember it. When we got to the bathroom door, I could see the dark stains of blood down its front. They had tried to get in here too, but this door stayed shut. I could hear weeping and tapped on the wood with my knuckles, mindful not to touch the blood. Sarah? Sarah, it's Jesse from down the road. You know, Mike's friend? In the back of my mind, I could see his hand slapping the table as he fell. Mike's dead. Go away. Leave me alone. I looked at Paul. I mean, how could she know that? I wish you'd come out here so we can make sure you're all right. If you want, you can go back in there afterwards. There's nobody here but me and my dad. Please? 
It hurts. Dad stepped forward. What hurts, Sarah? My arm, where Mr. Grant bit me. Why'd he do that? Creepy old dude. Mike grabbed him, and they were wrestling, and then... And then he ripped out Mike's throat with his teeth. The door opened, and she ran into my father's arms. It looked funny to watch him calming her down. My heart broke a bit. I wanted to be the one she ran to. A chance to be a hero. He was still dressed in his torn work shirt, and she clad in a black t-shirt with some past concert times listed on the back. She had wrapped her arm with a white bandage, yet the blood had soaked through. My father scooped her up and walked to the front door. Her black makeup was smeared down her face. Mr. Grant grabbed my leg as I passed the living room. I gaped at what was once a man, but was now an arm, shoulder, and head. I moaned a nasty sound as I kicked it off me. I could see what the Morsleys had been eating until they decided to go out for something fresher. We closed the door behind us. Paul put Sarah in the seat and I rode in the back, mindful of the tarp. I kept imagining Mike reaching out from the end of the roll and pulling me down into the folds of that blue hell. As we pulled out of the driveway, I gazed across the field. The town lay in the distance, miles of farmland between. The long column of black smoke, which seemed to come from City Hall, stretched to the sky. I stared over the spread of land. I couldn't see the fire, but I knew it was there. Just as I felt certain that everything had changed forever. Plumes of dust kicked out behind us on the dirt road, filling the space with a hazy vision of the Morsley farm. Now truly part of the past. Looking down, I noticed a puddle of blood forming around my feet. It encircled my right foot and seemed to stop and gel. When my father parked the truck near our front door, I stood up and wiped my boot heel on the tarp. He ran to the passenger side and helped Sarah out. Scooping her back into his arms, he climbed the porch steps. Bumping the door with his hip, it swung open as he entered. Jesse, bring the alcohol and bandages from the medicine cabinet. We'll be in my room. I took the stairs in a bound and fetched the items for him. For her. I stepped in the bedroom as he unwrapped her arm. The mottled, blackened flesh underneath sent a smell into the air. A slight whiff turned my stomach. <sighs> Damn. It's septic. He sat on the edge of the bed. Sarah held her arm out and had her head turned the other way. He raised his hand to his chin as he looked unseemly into a corner. What does that mean, Pa? And he didn't answer, but left the room. I heard him rummaging around in one of the kitchen drawers, and then heard him leave the house. 
I touched her shoulder. Sarah? She didn't turn or look at me. Yeah? My paw get you fixed up good. I hope my voice was confident enough. Footsteps on the porch made me grab the shotgun. Then my father walked in with a board and a propane torch. I relaxed and put the gun back down. Take off your belt, Jesse. I'm gonna really need your help. I unbuckled the leather strap from my waist and handed it to him. He took it and fed it under her arm high and cinched it back into itself. He pulled it tight and hard. She moaned in pain. The tattoo of a skull with worms climbing out of its eye socket distorted with the stretched skin. Put that board under her arm, right below the elbow. I did what I was told. I just couldn't figure out what he was doing until I saw the cleaver tucked into his waistband. Producing a match from behind his ear, he struck it with his thumbnail and lit the torch. Oh, you gonna cut off her arm? He turned the knob on the propane tank until the flame burned to tight blue. <sighs> nope. I'm gonna need to hold her down. His eyes locked onto mine. You're gonna do it. My head spun. My stomach churned and my eyes welled with tears. My father grabbed my arm and pulled me from the room. I looked back at Sarah. She hadn't moved. Boy, you better get your head straight. I don't want to do this either. But if we don't, she will die. I felt a huge lump in the back of my throat. I wiped my eyes with the back of my hand and nodded at him. And what I need you to do is take this cleaver and go pour some alcohol over the blade. And don't get that too close to the torch, you hear? He slipped the flat blade to me. I looked down into my reflection and saw a wide-eyed and scared boy. As I poured the liquid on the blade in the sink of the kitchen, the image seemed to wash away to a confident young man. I hoped that's what I saw. He was still waiting for me outside the room. And when I hold her down, you swing that thing hard and fast. You try to get it right above the elbow. Jesse... I'm dependent on you. And then you grab that torch and you burn that stump real good or she'll bleed to death. You hear? Real good. I nodded my head in agreement and then he walked in before me. Sarah. Sarah, sweetheart. And we're going to help you. My father's calm, soothing voice almost made me believe it was going to be easy. She moaned a little, almost like in a sleep. He climbed on the bed, his knees sinking deeply into the mattress. 
I'm not gonna lie to you, baby. This is gonna hurt. But it'll all be over soon. And then you can be on the mend. Straddling her, he drew a deep breath and nodded at me. Alright. In an instant, he grabbed her shoulders. Now! The movement woke Sarah from her haze and she began to buck and scream. I stood frozen until she sank her teeth into my father's forearm. Now, damn it! And I swung that cleaver as hard and fast as I possibly could. It cleaved clean and without error and buried itself into the board below. She screamed at a cry, releasing my father's arm. Then came the torch. I'd rather cut her arm off 20 times than imagine the pain she was dealing with as I cooked that stump of her arm. It sizzled and smelled like a mixture of burning hair and grilled steak. Then, she passed out. I remember thinking how upset Mama would have been to see the mess her sheets were in. Paul got up, grabbed the alcohol and poured it on his arm. He growled and winced as it burned into his wound. Looking over at the stump of her arm, he treated it too with a raised eyebrow. Jesse, you need to wrap that up with clean dressings. I'm gonna go find those pills Doc Ashford gave me when he pulled my tooth. And she's gonna be in all sorts of hurt when she wakes up. Now, maybe those will take the edge off and make it bearable. I hope. I've noticed when folks are at a loss, they hope and pray. I knew there was a whole bunch of hurting going on that day. The good Lord threw us a curveball, changed the rules in the middle of the game. Even people unsure of the situation, the future, even their lives. Maybe all that was left was hope. Yet I walk outside my door and the birds still fly. And the wind still blows. Here on our piece of land, things seem the same. But death doesn't always come floating in the air or on the wings of the crows. Sometimes, death comes in on two feet. Sarah woke up screaming. Pa stayed beside her bed all that day, using his voice to calm her. I stood out on the front porch to make sure we didn't get, as my father called them, surprise visitors. Keeping her quieted down with the painkillers, she seemed to sleep so peaceful. Two days had gone by without incident. I sat on the edge of the porch with the shotgun cradled in my arms. I'd seen folks walking in the distance, but none had come close. My father came outside the door and hunkered down on his haunches next to me. His eyes scanned the horizon for any movement as he sighed. She isn't doing so well. Burning up with fever. A need to drive into town and see what's left. Please pick up some antibiotics and other supplies. Now the radio has been playing nothing but static. 
got to know what's out there before. Well, just let me see. I'm all right, Pa. She gonna be out for a while? I expect so. She had three of the pills in the last few hours. Probably be sleeping most of today. I watched the truck as he drove away. I'd given him the shotgun to take with him, because we had more extra shells for that than the rifle. My father said he'd look for some more ammo while he was in town. The wind was bouncing across the yard again, and the crows cawed in the trees. A rabbit, seeming unafraid, hopped out front of the barn. I raised the sights and thought about the good fried rabbit we could be eating that night. The rifle shook in my grip. I lowered it and watched the animal scurry away. The door opened behind me. Sarah came onto the porch, a thin line of snot hanging from her nose. The color was out of her skin, leaving it gray. A haze covered her eyes. But they were just as breathtaking as the first time I had met her. And the most beautiful woman I had ever met wanted me. Her hand rose as she stumbled toward me. And she fell. And made a couple of unsuccessful attempts to stand. I raised the rifle again. My aim was true. I swallowed hard that lump in the back of my throat. I mourned her alone, my eyes full of tears. I opened a new tarp and rolled her body in it. She deserved a new tarp. I had made her last days on Earth a pure hell. At least she could have an unused shroud. I said a few words over her body. In the distance, I could see a trail of dust coming down the road. My father's truck lurched and bounced over the ruts in the path to the farm. My eyes hardened with the tears of my task glazed with the dust as he pulled in. In my relief, I recognized his blue eyes through the glare of the windshield. Odd that he didn't jump out right away. He just stared out the window from behind the wheel of the truck as I lifted a roll onto my arms and carried it to my hole. He walked over and grabbed the shovel from me. I watched from the porch as my father buried her. He fell to his knees beside her grave. There would be no marker. The truck's white hood was crumpled and covered with blood. A stack of shotgun shells and rifle ammo occupied the front seat. Several used shells were scattered on the floorboard. The truck was loaded with supplies, mainly canned foods and dry goods, nothing that needed to be kept cold. The electric went out the first night. Don't think it'll be back. Luckily, we had the propane tank filled the week before so we could still cook. I looked back at my father. He was kneeling under the tree. If there's one thing I've learned, it's that a man needs to grieve in his own way. I brought the supplies into the house. He was quiet as we ate dinner, even when I asked about town. We had pulled the truck across the driveway and sunk several posts. 
then stretched a roll of chicken wire and fenced us off from the world, from what was left out there. By the look in Pa's eyes, there wasn't much. He didn't speak of that trip. He would hold his arm and stare into space. I woke the next morning and brewed a pot of coffee on the stove. Pa never cared for the newfangled electric coffee makers. We had the oldest percolator in existence. That's what Mom had called it anyway. But it did make good coffee. My father was out in the barn, so I filled a cup for him to drink while I went to fetch some eggs for breakfast. There was somebody at the fence. They weren't trying to get in. Just standing there. As I entered the barn, I dropped the cup. Paul was tightening an ankle cuff to his leg with wrenches, attaching himself to that chain. I cried out in anguish. He looked at me and threw the wrenches towards the workbench where they clattered on the floor. He stood up off his chair. Bit me, boy. We gotta be safe. You've gotta be safe. But, Pa, she bit you before she turned. You'll be all right. Please, you have to be. Just a couple days, and then we'll see. A week tops. But you have to stay out of my reach. Promise me. He slapped the back of his chair. Promise me! Okay. But in a week, I'm getting you out of here. You just wait. Just wait. He forced a smile. Sure, Jesse. And how about that cup of coffee? It smelled good. And how about grabbing one of those roosters for dinner tonight? I sure could use fried chicken today. I'll be right back with your coffee. Do you need anything else right now? Yeah. I'm gonna need a bucket. Of all the things to forget. No, Paul. You forgot something else. I went and I hugged him tight. He held me so tight I could feel a tear fall from his face onto my neck. I love you, son. Mom would have been proud of us. I brought a chair and a lantern into the barn that evening for dinner. And we played cards as always. I reached across the table to retrieve the deck. He grabbed my arm and left an imprint of his hand on the side of my face. I fell off my stool, scooting on my backside away and rubbing my cheek. The sting was not as painful as the fact that he hit me for the first time in my life. Damn it, Jesse. Don't forget your promise. I'm sorry. 
but you can't get too comfortable. Not after what I saw. Put his hand to cover his eyes. In the light of the lantern, I could see the tears glistening on his cheeks. I righted my chair and sat up. What did you see out there, Pa? My father sobbed loudly. I slid my handkerchief across the table. He picked it up and dried his eyes. I've seen things that haunt my dreams. People turning on each other. Cannibalism in the streets. I was managing to deal with it until I saw the Dugans fighting over their baby. I watched as they tore it apart and fought like dogs over the pieces. snapped and I ran over them with the truck they didn't deserve to exist anymore son there's nothing out there the world has changed We made two meals off that rooster. There was still plenty of land chickens, so we weren't going to go hungry. Canned beans and something called potted meat product filled our stomachs. Pa had brought cases of these things home. There was always people walking around the outside of the fence. I had seen survival of the fittest in action when they had turned on each other. I guess when they got really hungry, it didn't matter what they ate. Paul was getting a bit grumpy. I believe he was bored. He could reach his horse and spent quite a time grooming her, but one day he was sitting in his chair with his head down on the table. I brought in fresh water and his morning coffee. He had placed his waste bucket out where I could reach it, yet for the first time it had been empty. He had been out here for five days. Only two more. My father raised his head Eyes glazed over He lunged at me The table blocking him skidded across the floor Until it fell on its side I cried out as reality slapped me hard I fled the barn There were four people on the outside of the fence I sat on the porch with the rifle shot one in the head. As soon as it collapsed, the others feasted on the corpse. I shot them all. My father wasn't like one of those things. He wasn't. I ate dinner by myself that night. I knew my dad would be yelling for his food in the morning. I knew it. 
a hope. There was nobody outside the fence this morning. The bodies must have been dragged off during the night. I brewed a pot of coffee for my father. He was always in a better mood after drinking his morning mud. I walked into the barn with high hopes. The horse backed against the far side of the stall. Animals have a good sense of danger. My father was hungry during the night. He had eaten his left forearm down to the bone. He looked up, chewing. He lunged at me again. The chain grabbed his ankle and yanked him down on his face. He pulled himself toward me as far as the chain would allow. Totally mindless. I ran outside and vomited. I had stared at the stars many nights from the yard, dreaming. The future isn't here in this land of dirt and seed. There must be others out there like me. I packed the truck with food and ammo, filled it with gas from the hand pump gas tank, and cut a section of that chicken wire fence down. I loaded the rifle and walked back to the barn a couple hours later. The thing in there wasn't my father anymore. My father was the man who held me when I needed him. The man who played cards with me. Who talked to me. My father was the person who taught me how to be man. Who showed me the meaning of love. He was lying on the floor, still reaching. The thing that wore my father's face was the great liar. Some invader that took over his body after he was gone. I thought about these things. I aimed my rifle. His eyes cleared for a brief moment as he grabbed the barrel and held it to his head. I saw a tear in those dead eyes. I squeezed the trigger. His agony was over. I could no longer hold back the pain I felt. The anguish a man shouldn't have to deal with. I thought I'd rather die than suffer that feeling again. But I'd rather live. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. 
please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.